This isn't working. Good morning. Oh, there you go. I think we have a quorum. We'll get our pediatric grand round started for January 21st, 2015. And I will um, add some comments at the end as people are still filing in. But we've got a good, uh, we've got a good uh, representation already to start as people file in. And we want to make sure that Dr. Shipman has adequate time to address his topic. It's a pleasure to welcome Scott to the podium today as a member of our department and a friend. Scott was uh, one of my chief residents in my training in 1999, was it perhaps? And uh, is currently uh, both a member as an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Geisel School of Medicine and our department is the director of primary care initiatives and workforce analysis at the Association of American Medical Colleges where he coordinates primary care related activities and works with a wide range of primary care leaders to disseminate effective innovations in teaching and delivery of primary care. He's probably going to talk to us today a little bit about a, a Center for Medicare Medicaid Innovations project that he's involved with nationally as well as here at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock, but also wants to uh, share some of his, I know, passion about pediatric health care and the interface between primary care and pediatric uh, specialty care. Uh, Scott, as I mentioned, graduated from our residency after coming here from the University of Nebraska College of Medicine, where I think he was also an undergraduate, and uh, graduated after chief residency here in, in 1999, went to Johns Hopkins, completing a Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Fellowship, as well as a Master's in Public Health from the Bloomberg School of Public Health, and um, spent some time in Oregon before returning back home here. A date I don't recall, but it's close to probably eight or nine years at this point. So, so um, this, as I mentioned, is part of our um, sort of part of our Chad mini fellowship series, which is one of the goals of that is to update us on the latest and greatest in various disciplines within pediatrics, but also to improve the interface, allow for easier transitions both to and from the, the specialty office. And, and this is a platform that Scott's going to talk about today. And um, Scott, take it away. Thanks, Keith. It's nice to, nice to be here, and hello to, to everyone. Um, I included this picture uh, initially both as a uh, uh, prelude to the Super Bowl coming up and uh, tip of the hat to the Patriots for getting there again, and also to reflect handoffs, which um, uh, referrals between primary care and specialty care uh, represent. I have to give credit to Steve Chapman for adding a third um, uh, interpretation to this, given the somewhat delayed start due to the delayed breakfast coming, and he suggested that that um, perhaps I was letting the air out of my talk a little bit um, <laughs> by having the the, the uh, delayed start today for those who are following the uh, underinflated football news. <clears throat> so, um, given that we got a little bit of a late start, I, I think we'll be fine on time. But I'm going to go ahead and get rolling here. So, to set the stage, just some facts about referrals. Um, Currently, about one in three patients is referred to a specialist each year. Of course, across different age groups, uh, numbers vary somewhat, but this is generally true across pediatrics. Um, in 2013, for the first time, uh, there were actually more office visits uh, in specialty offices 
than with PCPs across the U.S. The first time that had ever happened. If we focus in on kids, um, these trends have been have been seen. First of all, referral volumes have doubled in the past decade, um, uh, from roughly seven million to roughly fourteen million referrals for kids uh, over that ten-year window. Chris Forrest, uh, about a decade ago, uh, studied uh, several large health plans in the U.S. and compared those to uh, the National Health Service in the U.K. and found that kids in the U.S. were referred at about two to three times the rate of children in U.K. Now, Chris was careful to say that this didn't mean that kids were over-referred in the U.S. or under-referred in the U.K., but it is a striking difference nonetheless. The child here in the corner is... is uh, cheering for the fact that the U.S. won out over the U.K. in, in the, the uh, referral battle. <clears throat> this is a small study that uh, I participated in with the AAP a few years back, um, looking at changes over time in pediatricians' referral patterns. Uh, these were a series of vignettes that I've just summarized by condition uh, on this table. Um, uh, the vignettes were exactly the same when they were um, issued to about 650 pediatricians in 1997 um, and then again in 2007 to just over 600. And uh, you can see that uh, the odds of uh, pediatricians saying they would typically refer a patient that met that vignette um, increased significantly for some but not all of the conditions. So uh, we had one vignette that looked at new onset type 1 diabetes one that looked at severe nodular cystic acne, one recurrent otitis media. All of those uh, showed statistically significant increases in the likelihood to refer when adjusted for the factors uh, shown at the bottom of the slide. Uh, for uh, a fracture of the radius uh, and an innocent murmur, uh, those two vignettes showed no significant change in likelihood to refer. So now that you have your coffee, um, uh, I want to deviate from typical Grand Rounds talk at you um, approach here and just see what people in the audience think about why referrals have become so much more prevalent over time. Parent-driven. Parent-driven, okay. So parents. Okay. And what was the next one? Increased number of specialists. Increased number of specialists in the back. Okay. Yep. So, so potential potential medical legal concern. Okay. Uh huh. Do you distinguish between self referrals versus referrals that come from These. The yeah. So, um, and a self referral would probably fall into that bucket of parental um, uh, demand or insistence if, if someone self refers to a specialist, right? Dean. In the internet. The internet. Tell me more about what you think about that. You can go on the internet. Okay, so the internet driving parental demand. Yep, okay. Be more? Okay, patient volume, yep. Got it. And hard in what way? Can you expand on that? The brands of Pens, the different types of insulin. I mean, back then it was you got the oval and you got short-acting and long-acting, and that were your only choices. I had two choices, and it was easy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the amount of time that a PCP has to deal with each patient is probably shorter, so they just 
so after the diabetes control and complications trial was published in the early 80s, um, people really looked at intensive diabetes management, which is much more technology dependent and time consuming and, um, and the volumes of primary care. Great. So preponderance. Oh, a couple more. Yeah. Go ahead. Is it possible that we have more patients with multiple systemic or you know, complex patients surviving a living post So sicker patients, okay. Sure. Lacey? Um, I guess for the technology and I sort of looked at all the sort of medical and technology advancements with capture all the diabetes for specialist drive. But mm-hmm. I would say also if we see uh, as long as we have fee-for-service and we have conglomerating health systems, it's actually a payment benefit to generate, until things really change with the payment structure, we still get a benefit from a lot of referrals. Mm-hmm. And when you say we, who's the we that you're referring to in that? Well, I don't know. I turned that back to a TBI expert, but, you know, a big health system. So Dartmouth-Hitchcock, if we have a lot of specialists and we can build fee-for-service, for some of these referrals, as long as we can filter those, mm-hmm. although I, I don't think those of us in the room, when we refer, think, oh, we're making more money. But if you read the newspaper, that's what the evil doctors are doing, is trying to make more money. So at, at the health system level, yeah. um, there's a benefit to referral. And certainly at the specialist level, at, you can argue <laughs> that, that increased volume, filling up their clinics has, has some uh, a measurable benefit under fee-for-service. And for PCPs, I think you can make the same argument, right? That that the way RVUs are generated today, um, which is our metric of productivity, the um, it is, as, as um, was said previously, um, easier to refer a patient out um, uh, and have another patient fill in that 15-minute slot than it, than it is. Yeah, Steve? I might suggest the uh, underdevelopment of the concept of advanced primary care that can manage more complex patients yeah. in a primary care setting without referral. Mm-hmm. Underdevelopment, or perhaps we've um, had atrophy of that notion of, of primary care, and now we think of primary care as advanced primary care, whereas that was just primary care historically, potentially. You're sitting next to Bill, who might have comments about that. So. Thank you very much for, for um, stepping up. I, I put some together just in case you didn't step up and you hit most of these, um, and including some that I didn't think of or didn't include on the slide at least. Um, the increased availability of specialists, expansion of, of increasingly specialized clinical knowledge, uh, changing perception of the PCP scope or the PCP expertise, the limitations of a short visit, parental and patient expectations, fee-for-service payments, productivity incentives, um, and one thing that wasn't mentioned, but I think drives the overall volume of referrals is an increase in specialist to specialist referrals. So there should be some good news here, right? So with all this practice we have at referrals, having doubled over the last decade, we should be really good at it, right? Well, here's some quotes going back to 1964 and as recent as 2008. Uh, The referral process is often incomplete and needlessly inefficient. The referral process often falls short of its goals. The referral system is not consciously designed and leaves much to be desired. And um, referrals and the referral process listed as a prominent part of a patient's perilous journey through the healthcare system, most recently by Tom Bodenheimer. So um, in fact, we probably haven't quite nailed it, even though we do it a lot. Um, 
that is referring patients between primary care docs and specialists. So let's just spend a minute and look at the referral process. I think we often underestimate the complexity of the referral process, um, and it's worth spending just a moment thinking about it. So the simplified version is you've got your patient um, who just barely shows up here, but you can see up there at the primary care medical clinic. Um, patient comes in, is seen, decision is made for that patient to go see a specialist. Patient goes home, patient goes to see the specialist, all is done. Well, it's not quite that straightforward. So um, certainly there's lots of variability in the decision on whether to refer a patient. And once that decision is made, huge variability from one practice to another on the primary care side in terms of how that referral is processed. So um, does the primary care um, front office staff take responsibility for scheduling that appointment? Or do they just hand a slip to the patient and have the patient take care and take responsibility for scheduling that appointment? That often is driven by the specialty practices as well. Sometimes specialty practices choose to have that. So the primary care office calls the specialty office who calls the patient and schedules the, the visit. But of course, there's a lot of variability there. There's the notion of uh, needing prior authorization for some patients to get referred to see a specialist. Um, there's uh, a wide range of primary care practices from those that are antiquated and still sending faxes to those who are sending um, EMR-based referrals to those who send no information whatsoever for the patient and just hopes that the patient um, brings that information with them to the visit. Once the patient goes home, from their standpoint, the wait time to get to see the specialist is a huge impediment and, and a big dissatisfier for a lot of patients. Wait times for specialties vary all over the map, and I don't know what they are for PEDS um, subspecialties here, but it's not unusual to have three, four-month wait times at academic medical centers for specialties. And um, uh, for a patient who's been told or who has told the doctor themselves that they need to see a specialist, the notion of waiting months, even a month, um, is anathema to, to patient-centered care. Then the patient going to the specialist, you have to remember that patients have to take time off from school for our patients. Families have to take time away from work. Um, uh, transportation can be an issue. The whole notion of going to see another provider, oftentimes in another setting, um, uh, is fairly intimidating for patients. And so uh, no-show rates for patients are a significant problem with the system, uh, with no-show rates approximating 30 to 50%, not atypical. Then the patient um, hopefully ultimately does make it to the specialist, sees the specialist, but then there's the whole notion of how information is communicated. And so the communication between primary care and the specialist and the specialist back to primary care is another complexity that has high variability across the system uh, and has impacts on patient quality of care and uh, uh, ultimately primary care and subspecialty satisfaction as well. So I wanted to um, just cover some hypothetical cases um, of referred patients um, just to see if they resonate with folks here. So um, if you'll uh, indulge me, just quickly raise your hand if, if any of these um, reflect anything you've seen um, ever. So first, Jamie arrives with her parents at the specialist's office with no one having a clear understanding of the purpose for the visit. Okay, seen a little of that. <clears throat> Johnny arrives at the specialist office but the tests that were done by the PCP are not there. So the specialist orders repeat testing and asks the patient to return for another visit. Some of that, yeah. Back to Janie, she returns to her PCP after a referral and the PCP has to rely on the family's report of the specialist's advice and recommendations as no information has been sent. 
some of that. See some heads nodding. Johnny goes to the specialist. The specialist is uncertain about the PCP's comfort in managing the problem. Johnny was referred, after all. So Johnny goes on to receive follow-up care indefinitely from both the specialist and the PCP for the same problem. Okay. Johnny again goes to see the specialist, uh, and in the inter interim has developed a new problem that the parents bring up in the context of the specialty visit. Specialist one decides to refer the patient to specialist two for that problem rather than back to the PCP. Johnny has more visits to specialist one and specialist two going forward. The PCP knows absolutely nothing about specialist two being involved in, in his care. And then finally, um, Janie and her family skip the recommended specialty visit altogether due to the inconvenience of a long wait, a long drive, missed work in an unfamiliar setting. No one follows up to ensure that the referral has been completed. All right, so you can see that I, since some hands went up for each of those cases, there are a lot of places where, we, the, where the referral process breaks down pretty routinely. And we just really have come to be um, immune to that or relatively numb to the fact that the process is quite complex, patients have a very difficult time navigating it, um, and our system really has not developed in a way to facilitate good communication between uh, the providers in a way that really uh, helps the patient. In all of those cases I just shared with you, at some level, a breakdown in communication and coordination is the problem. And I, I would argue that um, fundamental to any efforts to improve the referral process for patients, we have to relook at our processes for communicating between primary care providers and specialists and coordinating care of our patients across the two. There are a lot of reasons why communication and coordination have broken down. In the past, we had many more opportunities to interact between the primary care side and the specialty side, whether it was in the care of hospitalized patients, the sicker patients, and um, uh, getting together around their care. Um, this old picture of doctors convening in the doctor's lounge. There used to actually be doctor's lounges where people got together and could chat and got to know each other. And just th there was a, a bond or a connection there that really doesn't exist in a natural way anymore. I think in pediatrics, we're better off than um, in the adult specialties, but still the, the quality and quantity of time together is pretty limited. I'm not sure that it's fair to say in pediatrics that primary care and specialists are on different planets, but um, uh, certainly in some cases that is the case. Some of the reasons for that are geographic isolation. Again, not a problem for this audience um, uh, predominantly, but for pediatricians and family docs who are more remote, um, the idea of actually knowing the subspecialist is a pretty foreign thing. Hospitalist models certainly mean that we don't interact in the hospital around the care of patients the way we used to. And those infrequent interactions, as I suggested, uh, can be problematic. Um, the, the lack of contact creates a gap in awareness and confidence in the appropriate roles of one another. You really just kind of lose touch of what, what the primary care doc can do, wants to do, uh, and vice versa. Um, the gap plus productivity pressures that have been mentioned and what is a cumbersome EMR, which actually doesn't, I would argue, help communication as much as one might think it would, uh, leads to diminished efforts at communication and coordination across the, the interface. And the result is fragmentation. Ultimately, that fragmentation leads to patients being uh, uh, victims and unknowing victims. Fragmentation is a big problem in healthcare. There's been books written about it. It's not the real focus of my talk today, but I think it is um, 
fundamental part of the problem when we have a broken down referral process. Just like the fragments of this parchment, if you don't have the whole story, you really can't provide optimal care. And fragmentation leads to missed diagnoses, mistreatments, overtreatment, basically anything um, you can imagine. Fragmentation, there's examples where uh, it leads to poor, poorer quality care, less efficient care as well. So the notion of the medical neighborhood has come up and really was built on the back of the medical home, not surprisingly. Um, the ACP uh, for adult medicine has really embraced this notion of the medical neighborhood and is really trying to promote um, uh, improvements in the interface of primary care and specialty care um, through the concept of the medical neighborhood. And essentially what the medical neighborhood um, is, is an effort to have subspecialists who recognize the role of the PCMH and work in an integrated fashion with the PCMH that um, really work to have systems in place for improved bi-directional communication and coordination um, and also ensure timely access to specialty services when they're needed. If we look at referrals from the context of the triple aim, I think you'll see that um, referrals, either high quality or low quality referrals, touch on each of these. So the fragmentation I just mentioned um, is a problem around quality. And when you have problems with quality and fragmentation, it's going to be harder for the population that you serve to attain uh, better health, one of the three parts of the triple aim. The patient experience is certainly not served when we don't communicate and coordinate well um, across primary care docs and specialists. And costs are, are um, driven up rather than down um, due to the same fragmentation, or can be. <clears throat> so in addition to this kind of newfangled concept of the medical neighborhood um, uh, and the way it fits in the also relatively newfangled concept of the triple aim, there are reasons really why the interface between primary care and specialty care should be seen as increasingly important today. Um, and, and that really boils down to this premium on efficiency and value that is increasingly and won't be going away anytime soon, the, the norm. All the payment models you see here, whether it's ACOs, bundled payments, uh, global payments or risk-based payments of any kind, capitation, really are all trying to drive down costs um, and increase quality um, and increase efficiency. And um, I would argue that in the ambulatory setting, there may be no place more ripe for improvement in efficiency and value than the interface of primary care and specialty care. So in my role uh, at the AAMC, I had the privilege of, of leading a project where we looked around the country to um, identify leaders um, in health systems that had really targeted this primary care specialty care interface and trying to improve efficiency and quality at that interface. We looked at a whole range of innovations, uh, including e-consults and e-referrals, which I'll talk more about. We looked at um, uh, systems that had um, developed real-time video access to specialists for primary care docs, so um, uh, they didn't need to send patients as frequently. They could care for patients in the um, primary care setting. Dedicated phone access, um, the so-called bone phone and nerve phone uh, that uh, Kaiser Colorado uh, developed, they actually had either um, subspecialists themselves or PAs that worked with the subspecialists available um, to answer the phone, not seeing patients, not getting pulled out of clinic um, to, to, uh, uh, to answer primary care questions and, and help uh, triage and direct patients where they needed to be. Referral tracking systems, we saw a system at the University of Oklahoma at Tulsa where they really had developed a very intricate system to deal with the complexities of the referral process so patients didn't get dropped. 
Um, uh, and uh, th that system worked quite well and was getting increased uptake uh, across the whole community, actually, outside the Academic Medical Center as well. How many people here have heard of Project ECHO? So, some. So, so we looked at Project ECHO. Project ECHO is, um, was started at the University of New Mexico around hepatitis C care, actually. The goal of Project ECHO was really to develop a cadre of primary care experts in initially hepatitis C across the state of New Mexico. Um, uh, Sanjeev Arora, the, the, the um, gastroenterologist who developed Project ECHO, was having wait times of about nine months to get hepatitis C patients in to see him. Um, and he knew that that wasn't in the best interest of the patients um, and that the primary care docs were suffering because they couldn't get their patients the care they needed. And he was suffering because he wanted to provide better care. So they developed this model where primary care docs throughout the state volunteered to become kind of centers of excellence for hepatitis C care. And uh, then the University of New Mexico and the, hepatolo and the hepatologists and gastroenterologists there um, provide weekly case-based conference calls to talk about the problem cases, answer questions, so that the care can continue to be managed in the primary care setting. This is extended to all sorts of other conditions um, now within New Mexico and is now extending much more broadly throughout the U.S. and internationally um, uh, as a mechanism to really improve access to needed specialty services through the primary care hub with the support of the subspecialists uh, helping uh, the PCPs. One of the problems with Project ECHO is that the funding has so far only been sustainable through grants. Um, uh, the model really is hard to sustain, um, in fact, impossible to sustain currently uh, without grants because there's no way to pay for the, the hepatologist's time or the pain specialist's time or uh, whomever um, in an ongoing way. Um, we looked at a variety of, of efforts to uh, reduce unwarranted variations in referral rates. Really interesting, when you look at almost any um, published paper as well as health systems that we've been working with, um, there's at least a five-fold variation across primary care docs in rates of referral to specialists. And there's always going to be some variation. As generalists, we don't know everything, and we're going to have different areas of interest where we have expertise and other areas where we have less interest or less expertise. So there's always going to be variation. But um, it's probably the case when you have five- to seven-fold variation across primary care providers in a health system that the people who are at the extreme low end, the extreme high end, um, uh, may not be best serving their patients uh, at either of those extremes. And so understanding what the variation is is a starting point to have a dialogue around um, uh, what opportunities for intervention there might be. And some of those opportunities are, include targeted CME and other support for providers um, if they identify either clinics or individuals who have a particular need. We saw several examples of um, embedment of subspecialists in primary care settings. And one example of primary care embedment in a specialty setting, um, not functioning as a specialist, but functioning as a primary care provider in a specialty setting. <clears throat> um, and then um, several uh, efforts at repatriation, the notion of getting patients back into primary care who have gone to see the specialist and then see the specialist perpetually um, uh, with questionable benefit to the patient. Um, the notion of identifying those patients, trying to get them back into primary care is a targeted effort that, that Mayo, for instance, and some other places have, have focused on. Well, an area that 
I found particularly compelling was the e-consult and enhanced referral. Um, and so we took what we learned from uh, the model at UCSF um, uh, around uh, e-consults and enhanced referrals and um, have developed a project at the AAMC called Project CORE, which stands for Coordinating Optimal Referral Experiences. It's really at the base an effort to establish improved communication and coordination um, between the PCPs and specialists in academic medical centers. The hope is to, that the, the partner AMCs we work with will establish an institutional focus uh, on improving referral quality and reducing unwarranted variations in referral practices, both at the primary care side and the specialty side, um, and build these structured um, e-referrals or enhanced referrals and e-consults, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a second, into the workflow through the EMR. So enhanced referrals are really just a different way to do traditional referrals from a primary care doc to a specialist. And what they are, they're templates that are condition or problem specific that um, guide the referral, that have some decision support for the primary care doc, and that try to align the evaluation of the primary care provider as they're sending the patient to the specialist. So if there are tests that need to be done for the specialist to be able to most efficiently take care of the patient at the first visit, that the PCP can order those tests. Um, the, these referral templates are developed in dialogue between the primary care docs and the specialists. It's not anyone giving an edict to anyone saying this is what you must do. Um, uh, there's a dialogue to try to come up with the right balance of the right evaluation before a referral happens. And some of the decision support actually is there to reduce the referral from happening in the first place. Uh, so, so it really is a different workflow around referrals. <laughs> the e-consult is the second part of the intervention. The e-consult is essentially um, a, an asynchronous curbside consult. It's an effort for the, an, uh, rather an opportunity for the primary care doc to be able to ask a focused clinical question of the subspecialist, get a response back within 72 hours that allows the primary care provider to take the next step in managing the patient or keep the patient in the primary care setting for ongoing management. Um, one important thing about e-consults is the mechanism for incentivizing them. As people said earlier, there's a lot of incentive currently for us in primary care just to say, if this patient's too complex, I'm going to send them on. And there's really no incentive on the specialty side unless you've got such a backlog of available, um, uh, uh, backlog for access into your clinics, there's really no incentive to not have the patient be referred to you. So um, both the PCP and the specialist are credited in this model um, for the time and effort they put into doing an e-consult. And I'm happy to take uh, questions about that. We can talk more about that if people are interested. <clears throat> the process for um, rolling this out is you just go specialty by specialty. So you identify um, your priority specialties uh, as an academic medical center, and the PCP lead and the subspecialists within that specialty work together to develop the templates uh, that will be used both for the enhanced referrals and the e-consults. Well, as Keith mentioned, we were fortunate to be funded with a grant from uh, CMMI, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, um, where um, uh, the AMC is the lead. We're partnering with UCSF since they had this model uh, first developed with some really compelling data about its effectiveness. We were able to work with five academic medical center partners, and Dartmouth is one of those. You can see the other four listed here. Um, there was really widespread interest in this model. We had about 40 academic medical centers express interest in 
um, uh, working with us on this model. We really didn't have the bandwidth to do more than five, and we're really happy at this point that we only picked five because there's a lot, a lot of learning that we're all doing going forward. It is focused just on the adults' primary care population served by each academic medical center as the first phase. You know, essentially using the Willie Sutton rule, most of the money is in adult medicine and most of the savings that can be accrued is on the adult side. But every academic medical center in this list here has expressed overt interest, if I can say that, um, uh, in considering at least this model for the children's hospital and the pediatric population. And there's no reason it couldn't uh, work as effectively, I would, I would argue. One thing we learned as we took this out to academic medical centers is um, the pressure that they're under um, to live in the current fee-for-service world and yet prepare for what's to come around value-based reimbursements. And so every academic medical center leader, and anyone who thinks about it, frankly, realizes you can't just flip a switch. We're in this world now where volume is what, what keeps the lights on. Um, and tomorrow's world will look very different um, uh, where efficiency actually starts to matter. One of the really nice things we found, and one of the reasons I found this model so compelling, is you can really make a solid case for this e-consult enhanced referral model under a fee-for-service world, and it makes complete sense in the long term under value-based reimbursements because it's all about getting care where it needs to be in the most efficient manner uh, to ensure high quality. So let me talk a little bit about the so-called ROI, the return on investment um, of the model. And this is based off of um, UCSF's experience during their first year of implementation. So um, overall, they found that the referral rates um, dropped by 20% um, uh, after they had this model up and running across all of their medicine specialties on the adult side. Um, E-consults were used for about 8% of, um, of referrals. So this new thing, e-consults, took about 8% of that 20%. Um, but still, there's a delta of a drop of about 12% uh, in referrals, and that comes from a couple of things. The decision support in the enhanced referrals, the guidance that the, that the problem-specific referrals provide, and also learning. So if I, if I do an e-consult for my hypothyroid patient once or twice, and I get the same answer back, I've got a new degree of comfort in managing hypothyroidism that I don't need to ask that e-consult or send the patient the third time. And you think about that multiplying across specialties, and there is real learning that happens on the primary care side through this. Um, improved access to specialty care. This was the reason UCSF developed this model. They had pathetic um, access to specialties. And it was becoming an institutional priority because in their market they were seeing payers that were insisting on good access to specialty care for um, uh, preferred uh, rates in the contracting. So UCSF saw um, their proportion of patients who got specialty input within 14 business days increase from 29% to 46%. And this happened pretty quickly. This wasn't like this took a long time to, to develop. This happened quite quickly um, within the first six to nine months of implementation. Here's some specific uh, specialties and, and the percent that got specialty care in less than or equal to 14 days, which was their benchmark goal. Um, you can see for each of these specialties, pulmonary, GI, and nephrology, a substantial improvement from baseline to intervention um, in 14-day access with improvement overall across all the medical specialties. Well, they also found some downstream benefits. If you think about it, 
this, if this model really works, getting specialty input, whether it be through an e-consult or an enhanced referral more quickly, um, should enable you to provide more timely, high-quality care to patients. And if that's true, there should be less need for your patient population to go to the ED, either because you as a PCP send them there, because it's the only way you can get specialty input quickly, or um, because the patient is spiraling downhill and ends up needing to go to the, to the ED because they're, they're getting sicker. They also, so they, they found that ED visits decreased by about 12%. Um, uh, profies uh, decreased about 17%. And they even saw a decrease in admissions. Now this is just a pre-post analysis. So there's all sorts of muddiness and messiness to this analysis. But it is promising um, that uh, um, each of these factors moved in the right direction. And there's a plausible case to be made for how this model could, could help to induce that. Well, specialists always want to know, um, in considering this, um, how much time does it take to do an e-consult? This is a new, a new skill, a new requirement. What happens is, typically, although this varies across the specialties, um, and we're allowing some latitude, actually allowing a lot of latitude, but we find that it's probably most effective to identify one or two people in each subspecialty who serve as e-consultants. Um, these are typically people who have been taking a lot of the curbsides anyway. They're trusted by the PCPs. They're pretty clinically active. Um, they like the teaching role. They like the notion of being able to teach and help to build the, the confidence and competence of the PCPs. So get a couple of those in each specialty and really work to develop their e-consultant role and their response to e-consults in a robust way. Um, but um, regardless of whether um, at UCSF especially took that model or just doled it out into a call schedule across all the specialists, which some did, um, here you can see this, the spread of how much time it took to do responses. Most less than 10 minutes, um, about a third, 10 to 20 minutes, and a small percentage more than 20. It's important to point out that the subspecialist has the option with an e-consult every time of saying, this is too complex, I need to see this patient. And they just, immediately just check a box on the template and it goes into the queue for a typical referral. What this primary care doc has already done in terms of the information they put into the e-consult serves as the referral information, the referral question for the subspecialist. So there's always that option. UCSF initially saw that um, up to one in five e-consults um, were converted into a, a referral. That's dropped in half as everyone's gotten more comfortable with the model. PCPs have learned how to ask the right questions more appropriately. Specialists have gotten more comfortable with the PCP's ability to manage things. So it's dropped to about 10%. But it's important to have that in there. PCPs really find the e-consult valuable. So 84% um, uh, responded that they strongly agreed that the e-consult response influenced the care plan. <clears throat> so, a couple other data points that are a little harder to come by here because they're not, not as, um, they're, they're a bit wordy. I apologize for that. First is that the PCPs like this. Um, uh, over two-thirds of the PCPs placed at least one e-consult in the first eight months. No one's required to do it. If you don't want to do an e-consult, you never have to do one. Um, if you don't want to manage cardiology patients at all, you never have to do a cardiology e-consult. It's there for the PCP if they want to um, extend their, their comfort level and hold on to patients and managing them rather than have them go to the, the subspecialist for care. Um, but most, I'm sorry, most PCPs found these of, of use. And 91% uh, who used it strongly agreed that the response was helpful. 
um, participating subspecialties uh, benefited under a fee-for-service model um, by enabling an increase in new patient visits. And I, I didn't emphasize one point about the enhanced referral template. At the bottom of every enhanced referral template, the PCP um, is uh, instructed to, to suggest what they see the long-term relationship of the subspecialist to that patient is. So in other words, I'm sending this for a one-time consultation. Please send them back to me. I'm sending them for co-management going forward. I'll be the first call for it. Or I'm sending them to you because I want you to take care of this problem uh, long-term. Send them back when they're well, um, uh, essentially. Um, now, the PCP sending that, that request doesn't mean that the specialist has to follow it, but at least starts an overt dialogue between the two of them about what's the right ongoing role for each of us in managing this patient. That's the intent. Um, and so um, by taking the low acuity patients through e-consults out of the queue for the specialists, it allowed more high uh, acuity patients who have a higher RVU value to be seen by the specialists. By taking out a small portion of the internal referrals from the internal PCPs, it allowed the subspecialists to get a bigger market share, um, get more external referrals coming in, and satisfy both patients and referring providers by getting them in more quickly. Um, and so the subspecialists found it um, very, uh, very positive from that standpoint. And patients um, have found it very positive as well at UCSF. Um, and when you think about it, there will be some patients who say, I want to see the specialist. You send them to see the specialist. That's what they want. That's what they should get. Um, uh, but there's also a lot of patients who see that as a big inconvenience or an impossibility in some cases. And being able to manage that in primary care where, they're, where they already know the provider, they're already there in some cases or have already had the encounter, and so a follow-up call can take them the next step, is a lot, uh, is a lot better for many patients. <clears throat> so let me just uh, move to opportunities for clinical improvement and innovation at CHAD that I would suggest. One is implementing this model in pediatrics. Um, customizing these templates for a pediatric population is eminently doable, and I think um, uh, there'll be the added benefit and, uh, and value of the adult population here already having gone through the process, the model being built in the Epic EMR here already. So a lot of the, um, the challenges in getting this up and running will already be taken care of with this CMMI grant. And so as a next phase, pediatrics, I think, could be well-positioned to engage in this. I think regardless of that, the notion of ongoing co-management conferences, which is a part of our grant process, to not only develop this model in the EMR, but have a setting where PCPs and specialists get together routinely to have a dialogue, not about the latest and greatest fancy thing in the subspecialty, but about common things that PCPs and specialists manage together to talk about rel relevant roles uh, in managing patients, uh, preferred um, uh, preferred tests in referrals, uh, and just to reestablish that dialogue that, that has largely disappeared. Um, and then lastly, one thing we've been shocked at across the five institutions we're working with, and these are the five institutions that seemed most primed to do this model, which is why we picked them, there's very little capacity in most places for really critically looking at referral data um, uh, at the institutional level, whether for PCPs looking at referral rates and variations, um, either by provider or by site, by where the referrals are going to. Um, the quality of clinical questions is something we really could benefit from looking at. Most of us um, have come to think of a referral as an administrative um, uh, duty to say, you know, murmur <laughs> um, uh, or headache uh, and not anything more than that. We really need to, to relook at the quality of clinical questions. 
I would venture to say we don't know how well our primary care docs here do at asking clinical questions and sending referrals. And similarly on the specialty side, there's lots of data that's very important, some of which probably is looked at, um, uh, but probably not all of it and not as systematically um, as might be the case if you really wanted to prioritize referrals. Um, if you have the data, then you're much more likely to respond to it. Finally, educationally, I think it's important to point out that there are fantastic opportunities um, uh, around uh, looking at referrals for Chad and frankly for, for most of uh, academic medicine. There's uh, certainly a curriculum needed about high quality referrals and the associated need for communication and coordination between primary care docs and, and specialists. Um, this is frankly relevant for both primary care providers and specialists. Um, the notion of what does it mean to be thoughtful and mindful of the needs of your peer on the other side of that interface uh, is very important. Similarly, just sitting down with residents and talking through the complexities of the referral process may be something that they've not really ever thought about in depth before. Um, in a timely um, uh, release of a paper that just came out a week or so ago in academic pediatrics, there is a new Entrustable Professional Activity, or EPA, on referral and consultation in pediatrics. Um, uh, and so I would, uh, for those who are on the educational side, um, uh, ask that you look at that. There's 17 elements in this EPA. I don't know a lot about EPAs, I have to admit, so I'm, I'm no expert here, but 17 elements under th the three headings shown here, making appropriate decisions to refer, making the referral, uh, ensuring it's completed, providing appropriate post-referral patient care coordination and follow-up. So that gives, I think, the framework for thinking about how um, uh, a referral curriculum might be implemented in the, in the program here. And frankly, I think the faculty would learn a lot from that as well. So in closing, um, the complexity of the referral process is typically underestimated. Quality of referrals is less than it should be. Um, uh, greater scrutiny of efficient use of resources um, uh, leads referrals to warrant greater prioritization in academic medicine. Models do exist to improve quality, efficiency, and patient-centeredness of referrals. And we should make sure we teach the next generation the importance of communication and coordination between providers. And that, I think, is it. Thanks. Yeah, I think that, that um, our process of, of identifying sites to visit in that project I mentioned where we um, at the AAMC went out to look at innovators in um, uh, health systems that had, had prioritized this interface between primary care and specialty care, um, we were fairly exhaustive in trying to find the best of the best. Um, uh, whether we did or not is uh, open to, to scrutiny, but um, the two you mentioned are, were, were on our list. We went to Mayo. Um, Mayo is a little bit different than, than many places, and, and so I should be specific. We looked at what Mayo was doing 
um, between their primary care providers and their specialists. So much of what Mayo does is specialists serving specialists around the country who are sending their patients. And so they, they've developed a whole e-consult process at Mayo for a specialist to specialist consultation. Um, uh, but we focused just on what was happening between the primary care docs, who Mayo also employs, um, and, uh, and the specialists. And that, that's a unique challenge there because the specialists at Mayo are in the mode of do it all, do it now. Patient comes and they get the grand slam of a workup across specialties um, for, for an efficiency standpoint because these patients are coming from a long ways away. Once the specialists are in that mindset, and that's just the way they do things, when the local patient who the primary care doc serve gets sent to them, um, it can mean huge costs um, uh, for the patients with um, sometimes overkill in terms of the evaluation for routine uh, referrals. So they've actually developed a, um, uh, or are developing um, a second tier of specialists, if you will, it's probably not the right terminology because it makes them sound lesser, but um, a community-based specialist group that works with primary care and has a different approach to its evaluation. I could go on, but just to leave time for questions. Um, Scott, that was a great talk. I've worked in three very different primary care settings in my career. Inner city Boston, where you couldn't turn around without tripping over a specialist. Rural Washington, where it was three hours to Seattle Children's Hospital, including a ferry ride, and most of my patients were not willing or able to make that trip over to Seattle Children's. And then here, which is somewhere in between. So I was wondering if you can comment a little bit on the variability that you've looked at in terms of referral rates, um, and care that is received? Yeah, um, well, ac across the geographic divide, um, uh, there are certainly variations in referral rates that are seen with um, docs in rural settings tending to be more self-sufficient or referring patients less, whether they're more self-sufficient or not. Um, uh, the, uh, the other interesting thing that we've looked at, and I, didn't, I couldn't figure out how to fit it into the talk today, but thank you for the question because it gives me a chance to squeeze it in. Um, uh, rural uh, pediatricians are much more likely to utilize adult subspecialists um, when they need subspecialty care. Um, uh, so the degree of distance or isolation from pediatric subspecialists really strongly drives um, uh, use of adult subspecialists, which is its own interesting um, phenomenon for pediatric, uh, for pediatric care. Um, I don't know if that fully addresses the question, but I think, yeah, w without question, that's why Project ECHO was a, an effort to try to overcome some of those geographic um, barriers. This model, um, as we're currently developing it, is really intended for the local primary care population served, but most, if not all, of the institutions we're working with want to extend it once they figure out, work out the kinks um, of the model to the referrals that are coming in from outside as well. There are some challenges to that around the EMRs, but um, uh, there, it's, it's of interest. Um, thanks for this talk, and I'm really impressed with your very sort of innovative use of electronic communication. Um, but I, I see it, I'm reading a lot of very advanced safety work focusing on these great models that then get disseminated and completely fall apart when we see the dissemination. And a lot of good research on why this is happening. And I'm wondering, I know you're in the model building stage, but are you thinking at all about how this could be disseminated? Are you capturing what um, safety culture, readiness culture, those sort of softer markers hmm. to make sure you, that, that your project will remain pure 
<laughs> I'm not sure that in three, three months into this project, I'm not sure that the word pure is even anywhere in my lexicon. <laughs> um, uh, so, so what we're effectively trying to do here, and why I think CMMI funded us, um, is to look at whether this model that was promising at UCSF can be disseminated yeah. um, uh, into other settings. Um, I should talk with you about um, uh, the best ways to assess culture across a variety of domains. Um, we're try we trying to do that. Um, uh, one of the things that's interesting about CMMI grants is we're not funded for doing research. We're funded for um, effectively implementing the model and saving CMS money. Um, uh, and so um, we obviously have an evaluation plan in place um, to look at whether this model can be disseminated and generalized to other settings because we have another dozen academic medical centers who would like to do it if it works. Um, uh, but we're already finding there's so many factors that go into the likelihood of success of dissemination. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating, um, but challenging. Yeah. Safety surgical checklists have fallen flat on the space in Canada. Yeah, that's interesting. So Scott, so just a couple thoughts. So Scott is um, Scott is still part of the Dark Methods family. He's a member of the Center for Primary Care and Population Health Innovation, working on innovations in the primary care uh, service line of practices here. Um, I do want to make sure I welcome and introduce Stephanie White, who is the latest member to join the And uh, last time, many of you know that the, the primary care family and the Dartmouth family lost uh, a key member last week, Margaret Kaznoff, you might have read in the Upper Valley and the Valley News and other settings, was at Dartmouth and Dartmouth Medical School and Hitchcock residency graduate, was leading the internal medicine practice and part of the leadership team for primary care here in general, so <coughs> as part of pediatric families and as well. And I, we just learned at the section chief's meeting at 7 that or one of her sign-offs was onwards. So I think in that spirit, obviously, you went onward. Thanks. 